Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? You're trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. You could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good morning, good evening, good night, entrepreneurship and leadership channel listeners on the New Books Network. I'm here with my friend and co-host, Kimon Fontigidis. Pontakidis, get your name Thank right. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> uh, Massacred it. After all these years. <laughs> and uh, our very special guest, Krzysztof Zdanowski, who's the CEO and founder of Summerlingued Technologies. Um, I could try and introduce you, Krzysztof, but I think you'll do a better job of it than me. So could you just ex- tell everyone who you are in a minute or so in the way you would if you met someone new at a business networking event or even a party? Uh, hello, guys. Uh, thank you for hosting me. Uh, it's it's always a pleasure. So uh, my name is Chris Krzysztof. I come from and, and live in Krakow, Poland. I think we're neighbors, uh, more or less. Uh, and I run a company called uh, Summa Lingua Technologies, a company I started about 11 years ago. And what we do is we help uh, global content-rich companies uh, streamline and curate their uh, multilingual content. Uh, we also help um, global NLP builders with uh, their data requests or their data needs. I know what NLP stands for, but, but just for the, all the, because like this is, not, by the way, this isn't a localization or it's like a tech. So they might just so everybody knows what, yeah. what that is. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, well, put it this way. Let me rephrase for every, AI product, you need uh, data to learn from, and we provide that data. That'll be a simpler way uh, to put it. Okay. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. And uh, you said you've been doing this for 11 years. Um, Is this your first business? Maybe you give a bit about your age and your personal situation, because we we can see you here, but a lot of people were listening and they can't see that you you look pretty young to be a CEO. (laughs) I'm 35. Uh, yes, yeah, so I this is this is really my first business. I started, so I moved to Krakow, Poland, um, to study. I did uh, my BA here in in Krakow, and I come from a, a bilingual family. My mom's from Canada, uh, so I and and I'm just inherently very lazy, as I think many entrepreneurs are, uh, in in a way. Uh, and and so English and Polish and you know I spoke uh, both of uh, both of the languages so I just started and and you know translating interpreting to pay my bills in Krakow and like many founders of language companies I think you know I the, the portfolio of clients sort of uh, naturally grew and and this is where I found uh, you know a source of revenue for me and I started my business. Uh, during my university years here in Krakow, a small translation uh, translation shop, um, and and it is my my first uh, business. Okay, and so if you go back to like you, you've already mentioned that you've got sort of like dual nationality, family, but 
what, did you ever imagine you might have your own business when you were a teenager? Did you have any role models of entrepreneurs in the family or friends or brothers or sisters doing it? Or, or are they all a bit surprised that Christoph is doing what he does? <laughs> no, no. So I think it's a good, it's a good question whether um, this is something that you can learn or it's something you're born with. So I don't, I don't come with uh, from a family of entrepreneurs, right? My now, I come from a, a middle class, not wealthy, not rich, just the middle class, uh, Polish family in a sense. You know, we uh, can you we did that? okay. Can you, but, can, can, can you describe that for us? Yeah, because we know what a middle class Polish family looks like. But our a middle might, class European you're, you're family. Milk, you're milking, I think everybody. You're milking, you're milking the cow. <laughs> you're you're uh, no. You, 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 no, have no. Refri- you have a refrigerator. We have had a lot. of We've actually had a lot of farmers on the on the show who became oh, so, okay. it's actually interesting that's why he's he's saying that but, uh... yeah, but there's also this stereotype of poland that uh, in, around the rest of the world that we're incredibly poor and people are amazed that we wear shoes and have a fridge <laughs> oh, okay I, I don't know about that but yeah no just uh just the middle class not really wealthy uh you know family my mom uh, it was the four of us. I had three siblings, uh, two sisters and a brother. So she always worked uh, at home with, you know, taking care of us, uh, the, the children. My father uh, had, um, you know, a, 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 a white collar, put it this way, uh, you know, job. He worked at a bank. Uh, then he moved to a private, the private sector. He worked at a company uh, as an advisor to the board um in in the south of poland um yeah and and i'm confused a little bit about did you grow up in canada or did you grow up in it sounded like you grew up in cat like i'm actually don't even yeah okay yeah no no so i was i was born in warsaw uh poland so just to go back my mom was born in canada she's a daughter of uh polish um immigrants Okay. Uh, this is just after the war. My grandfather uh, had to move out from Poland. If you know the the history a bit, you know, and he was high, high well, he was a general in the Polish army, uh, quite uh, highly ranked. And obviously it was a, a you know, it was very difficult times for them to uh, continue in Poland. So he had to move through Germany and the UK, he ended up in Canada in 1947, I think. My mom was born in 1949. And then as soon as uh, it was feasible for them, they obviously wanted to always move back to Poland, very patriotic. I, you know, I consider, although dual national, I, I consider myself Polish. And, 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 you know, so they moved back in, uh, when she was about 20, I think, 19 or 20. Uh, and that's in the, let's say, solidarity times in Poland. Uh, that's, you know, the, the ship that they were on, like one way, the way they were, you know, going to Poland was empty. The other way, everybody was going the other way, right? <laughs> so it's just very weird uh, in a sense, but that was just when, when it was feasible for them to come and actually, you know, live their final days, uh, my grandparents here in, in, in Poland, very important for them. So, no, I was born here in Poland, but I did spend uh you know a back and forth years uh, uh in in canada i did my my school here in poland but uh and and speaking of entrepreneurship uh i did you know i, I think as early as 
15 or when I was 15 or 16, every summer I would go to Canada for four or five months and work on a construction site, building golf courses, building different, you know, construction or building facilities in real work, uh, in real work, real work, real work, real work, <laughs> waking up at like 5 a.m. or so, uh, working for, for, for 12 hours. Obviously, you know, the, the conversion rates at these times were uh, more favorable than today. <laughs> so I was actually able to make probably more than my father would make after, you know, 20 years here in Poland, uh, uh, speaking of an hourly, hourly wage. So this was when, when I was, you know, 15, uh, so early yeah, 2000 and uh, I was born in 87. So whenever. Uh, but yeah, just to what's your motivation then, because, you know, your parents were middle class, so you didn't have to have the money, it wasn't to survive. But obviously, you were pretty much it's, it's a tough thing to do to go to Canada and work for five months on a building site. So what why were you doing that? Did you were you greedy? Yeah, did, you so it's, of, I think did you want tons of money? Or what was it? I, I, I did. <laughs> and it's it is about, I think about that inborn entrepreneur, right? Because even if you move a few years earlier, before, you know, I was able to work, like I would probably, and I think my first job uh, was um, selling, I probably sold half of the unused stuff in our house on <laughs> a marketplace called Allegro. I think it went live in 1999. And at some point in the early 2000s, I think it was 2001 or two, I was barely 12 or you know 15 or 14 we I was one of the top ranked sellers on that on that uh platform Okay just for people the, that don't know what that is that's the Polish It's eBay. like an Amazon yeah. Yeah. right or, eBay yeah. Amazon yeah, yeah. And, and you've, um, also, you've also clarified that really the Similingway was your, is your first big success but actually you were in business earlier you were doing because actually the process not everyone does this the process of buying and selling stuff and you were you had that earlier and, and was that did you have anyone who gave you the idea or did you just figure it out yourself? No, it's just a body of mine at, at high school or, uh, yeah, middle school, whatever you call it, gymnasium here in Poland. Uh, we we did that together. We used to sell uh, BMW key rings. I think we were <laughs> virtually importing them from Italy or somewhere. He had a connection there. We would, And we really made it to the front page of Allegro. At some point, we were really one of the top-ranked sellers on, on that uh, marketplace. Uh, and, and yeah, so I think, you know, at some point we, and, and you had to ship them, like, in virtually go to the post office and, you know, pack them and all that. So we actually had two people from our school doing that for us, our first employees. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, That's great. Uh, actually, I, I don't recall how much, but we made quite a bit of money, at least for the age uh, that we were, you know, so uh, we're still very close friends with with uh, uh, with Pavel, a guy that we that we worked on this together. So I think it's something that you have in you in a sense. And like my brother, for example, you know, we come from the same family. He's the, the, the exact opposite. Right. He has nothing to do with you know, being an entrepreneur, he's more of an artist of a, you know, romantic soul, uh, just very different. So it's something I have, I think it's, you know, entrepreneurs have these sort of uh, a different set of eyes, they see things that others don't. Um, and, and that's just very, uh, yeah, very different and inborn, I would say it's something difficult to learn, you can get all the MBAs and studies that you can think of, but difficult to learn. Um, Krzyszek's in, in my camp, in my school of 
like we, we had a Harvard business professor on here and he was actually teaching entrepreneurship at Harvard. And okay. I, I was, uh, I was skeptical of the ability to teach okay. <laughs> entrepreneurship, yeah. although it was interesting, but I agree with you that uh, I do tend to agree with you that uh, you have either you, somehow you have it or you don't. And I don't know, but we, we're, we have this show here and this, this podcast to try to understand what it, actually means because mm. we don't know what it is actually yeah. I, just, just coming yeah. back to your your first do you remember the first time you sold anything on allegro like do you remember your first sale is it like a was that like a wow this actually works type moment or was it just you were just <laughs> playing around i don't i don't remember the first sale it must have been i i remember a few uh transactions i regret <laughs> because had i not sold things like we had this computer that my father brought from canada uh, it's, you know, uh, probably worth a lot of money now. And just as a relic sort of, you know, I wish I didn't sell it, but I did. And, and these things, right. I don't really remember the first, the first transaction. Um, these key rings from, I think from, you know, the B, BMW, th- uh, key rings were, uh, you know, the r- real thing in a sense, because we started importing them and, and. Um, obviously, we didn't have a business officially, right? It's um, you know. So, the, so like if anyone from the, the Polish tax authorities are listening, they might. Come yeah, I think it's, <laughs> it was. It's more than twenty years ago or something. So I hope it's like outdated, whatever it's called. Statute of limitation. Yeah, statute of limitation. Well, well, the current yeah. government, you know, they're going after people. So you know, who knows? <laughs> Wouldn't it be a sad end of this podcast if what? <laughs> Richard, I don't even know where you're going. I'm yeah. sure Shishik has a great. Like, I, I think you should hold on to your first sales story or whatever, or big sales story. I bet you he's got a good one from uh, from his, well, from Sumalingua uh, story. Yeah. I, that, that There's always one there when you start a business that you got a big first client or something like that. But maybe, yeah. I'm, I don't want to interrupt uh, Richard's yeah, I, I, train I, I, here. Of, uh, uh, yeah, no, I think, I, think we'll, I, I think we'll drop the train of why aren't you in, pr- <laughs> why aren't you in prison for tax, tax evasion <laughs> 25 years ago but, well, or 30 years ago. But <clears throat> what I'm interested, like, did you imagine you were going to have a business like obviously you started your translation it's a very natural thing in translation you you gradually get so much work you take on other people and so that was a kind of evolution which may mean there was never really a moment where you decided this is what i'm going to do or or was there like that moment hang on this could be such a good business this is worth me devoting a big chunk of my professional life to I think, uh, I don't know if I thought about this in such a way, but pretty early on, you know, with with my English and Polish, I thought this is something I'm going to do. This was, this must have been already in high school. So before university, because that's, you know, that's how I started uh, by working as, as an interpreter. I never liked the the translation, the, the written uh, um, thing, because just too lazy to do this, sit in front of a computer. I'm a people's person. Another feature of an entrepreneur, I think you're more of a, you know, people's uh, uh, creature rather than, uh, you know, it's not about IQ, it's more about the emotional intelligence, which I think is represented in, in uh, how you're, you are with, with people. So I, I went that route. So I don't recall the exact moment, but I, I think I knew pretty early on, this is something it's, it's, it's worth exploring. I never thought it's going to be a business. Uh, of that size now and obviously you know whatever happened later is just uh well we'll probably dive into that later but i i didn't have this in mind but i i knew i'm gonna do this uh as 
as a way to pay my bills. After, but you still decided to go to university, right? You, you yeah. Know. What did you study, by the way? I'm kind of curious now. I did. I did a uh, a three year BA in applied linguistics. So that's exactly mm. you know one translation, basically not the philology studying mm-hmm. uh, or teaching part, but the the applied uh, translation part of of uh, language. Uh, I also did, before my university, uh, I did a gap year uh, doing a bunch of uh, volunteering and traveling the world and all that. And during that um, 12-month period, I also did a a course in Rome. Um, And this was a uh, multi-disciplinary course on different things, from public speaking to... philosophy and just many many courses uh a few months in in rome um but yeah this is as much studying as i've ever done so then how so then let's get to it then like so you're so in in your studies you start that whatever and obviously interpreting and you want to you get some clients and and we're like just how did this how did this whole thing start yeah so <clears throat> so I worked at, I had this one big client uh, through a translation uh, uh, agency here in, in, in Krakow. I worked at a steel plant. Um, there's a big steel plant uh, in, in Krakow. I worked night shifts, actually. I studied during the day. It was a three shift. Uh, they, they were building, a, a German company was building a new Coke plant in, uh, in Krakow, right? That's part of the, 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 the whole steel facility here. So we, uh, they required, obviously the Polish engineers didn't really speak English that well. So the, the Germans required a facilitator and I worked and this whole thing runs obviously 24 seven, right? So I was the youngest, I had no family. So they put me on the, the worst uh, shifts, <laughs> right? So I, they were also the high, highest paid ones, yeah, right? Of course. Because who's going to? Who's going to want to work at night in a coke plant in Krakow? <laughs> uh, I, I did. Um, and, you know, Christmas, Christmas Day and things like that. So this was a few years. And then if you recall, this was 2006, 2007. I think it, in 2008, a big um, steel crisis together with the financial uh, one obviously hit the world. And hence, the client has let all the external uh, interpreters go, and I lost my job. Right, so it was it was just really well paid. I think I, I must have been making, in speaking in you know today's terms, probably two and a half, three thousand uh, dollars monthly on, oh, wow. on this. So for a student, you yeah. know, 18, 19 years old, I think doing fairly well. Uh, and it was obviously to be well difficult for me to go back. Uh, I had to still find a way of, of uh, making money to pay my bills. So were, were, um, you, were you saving money? It sounds like you did this construction site stuff. Like it sounds like either you had an this expensive was before, life, yeah. You, either you had an expensive lifestyle and you're into flashy stuff, or you were squirreling money away so you had the money to start to invest in your business. And are you more like a? a and if, if uh, do you have like a big Ferrari outside your house or whatever size Ferraris are, and the swimming pool and the helicopter? Are you that kind of guy, or are you more like have the money for the freedom than the stuff you can buy? Or mm, I I think I think it was somewhere in between. I I, I would not say I'm I was just you know, uh, trying to be cheap and save every penny and, you know, steal food from my, uh, uh, you know, the people I, I 
lived with in a five uh, uh, in a five person two bedroom apartment we were renting in Krakow uh, just to save no uh, but I wasn't also spending you know left right center uh, or overspending but I, I did for example you know the the first uh, it's actually a funny story the the I got my driver's license in Canada when I was 16. In Poland, you can get your driver's license when you're 18. And I made enough money to buy a BMW. It was obviously a used one, a 1996 uh, three series BMW. So I bought it with the money I made in Canada, but I didn't have a Polish driver's license at the age of 17. And I drove around Poland or around, you know, uh, where I lived uh, south of Poland, not Krakow, actually I lived in Nowy Sąd for a while. Uh, without a Polish driver's license using the Canadian one. Uh, I did get pulled over a few times, but I didn't speak a word of Polish, just use my Canadian license. And, you know, so, I, we're like brothers. Like we are, okay. like, I have literally every story you have. I have the exact same story. This is oh, yeah? ridiculous. It, anyway, no, it's just really weird because I'm listening to this. I'm like, yeah, I, I spent the semester in Florence. You spent the semester time in Rome. <laughs> I spent, like every one of these, every like you're going down the line. Sorry, I, I kept the comment. It's just really weird. But yeah, you could get so away back in the this. day with the ink. Yeah, sorry. Let me ask you this. What was the first dream job you, you dreamt of having when you were like five? Not 15 or 20, but like no, five or six or seven. Know. I didn't understand that. But the thing, another thing, but I was into selling stuff. I, but I, I'm older than you. There was an Allegro. I used to go to a flea market that we had. I don't know if you know yeah. what a flea market is, but that's like what yeah, they had in like yeah, the East yeah. Coast. You go and sell junk there. And I had dreams of like having people set me up with cheap junk that I could sell. But like you, the, the thing I wanted that you're... to, <laughs> and the reason I'm asking is because I wanted to be a garbage man. Because when my grandmother and and or my my parents were taking me around for walks, I saw all those all those junk thrown away. That I thought it's so exciting to find interesting yes. stuff in it, and I wanted to I wanted to have it. So that's I really virtually that's wanted crazy. to be a garbage man when I was five or six. <laughs> that's so funny. <laughs> That's so funny. No, and also not to harp on this brother thing, but like you, like I have said my whole life that I'm lazy. <laughs> it's like one of my main yeah. things that I've ever said. I've been driven okay. to success for, by a laziness. By laziness. Same here. And, Same and, here. And, and, yeah. So, so is that delusion? I mean, I think for some of our listeners who haven't yet sort of started on their entrepreneurial journey, this may be a bit puzzling because Keeman actually, and although I know he's, he's being truthful when he says he's he wants to be lazy i've seen him work really hard for decades and decades efficiently but it's you know taking so what's your definition of what why do you think it is that entrepreneurs are quite often have this desire to be lazy chris lazy. Mm. Uh, yeah i i don't know why it's it's i think one of these you know inborn things that they it's they're perfectionists at some point, but also lazy enough to, you know, ask others to do work for them. And, and I don't think there is an answer to why. I think it's just the way it is. Uh, also, I think they realize that they can gain wealth by scaling and it's difficult to do it on your own, right? So I never, I actually never had a, a business I owned 100%, even from day one. The business I had in, you know, the translation business that is now Sumalingue, I was never 100% shareholder, right, or an owner. So partners uh, or partnerships um, was also part of, you know, uh, let me let me partner up with 
somebody who can do part of the work or is better. I also never had an issue with, you know, working with people like, because sometimes you can think of entrepreneurs having an ego issue. I would never say that of myself. Um, I think I always wanted to work with people that are, who are better than me uh, so they can, you know, help me uh, become wealthier and better as well. Uh, even from, you know, that funny Allegro thing, right? I, I had a partner and, and, you know, I didn't want to go to the post office, spend an hour in a queue and, and send and ship the, the, the crap out. I, I had other people doing that for me, right? So I think it's just something you have. Um, I, I'm not sure. And I think I'm not sure I completely agree. I think the laziness actually is, and it's the same issue, but there's a, there's a reason, there's an understanding that it's okay. being much more focused on how to get things done than who does it. And for a lot of people, being hardworking means you're the hard worker, whereas for an entrepreneur, it's like, what's the most effective way of getting this done? And you mm. draw attention to the scaling and you know the fact you didn't want to go and stand in the post office. But it's also, if you go and stand in the post office, you can't do anything else while you're doing that. So yeah. it, it, it limits the organization and you know certainly you know, looking at being happy with the outcome rather than being happy that you worked hard is is part of being an entrepreneur, I think. Um, so coming back to the Simulingua story, um, were there sort of particular, you had your clients and how, how did you get your, when was the first time you stopped getting clients by personal recommendation or word of mouth? Or in fact, how did you get your first clients? Well, so... Um, the, I recall this one one uh, very early on. Um, I think you know SEO today uh, a standard and very you know difficult to compete. I think our website or the website I, I set up in 2009. I think uh, I did invest a lot in SEO. I think these days I don't recall the details, but it wasn't pretty. It wasn't really you know widely understood and and common. So I think we did pretty well on just internet marketing. Uh, and this is this, and through uh, through that website, I think we attracted one lead, an e-commerce business from uh, Germany, uh, Konrad Electronics. I have no issues disclosing the name. Uh, they they wrote to us. Uh, they were going live in Poland. Okay, so they wanted to set up shop in Poland. They had to localize our, all the products, right? Product descriptions and so on. So we were invited, or I was invited to a meeting. Uh, in Germany. Uh, I went to Germany and they had this, uh, Kimon is going to know the name of the software, Richard. I, I don't know about you, but Trados, right? Trados yeah, was yeah, yeah. at least this, okay, a market standard uh, sort of way of translating content. It's a bilingual, let's say, uh, you know, uh, interface where you translate on the right and you have the source on the left, right? Just the tool that uh, our industry uses. I, at this point, I had no clue what Trados was. Uh, and, you know, they're asking us, or they're asking me like, look, we have all that content. We'll send you all the files in Trados. I, you know, I said, sure, you know, we use Trados, everything. So I sort of faked it uh, in a sense. And I sold, you know, the, the, the moment I walk out of that meeting, I, you know, Google Trados and purchase my <laughs> first license, right? So, this I remember. And funny enough, the founder of Trados is now our board member and one of the investors. So I always oh, tell that, that is story. Really funny. It's, a, it's a funny one. Yeah. Um, so so how did you do it our... though? Like, and then how was the partners? Like, tell us, cause like you said, you got partner, like just what's the story? Like mm -hmm. that's the, maybe one of the first clients, but like, 
you went from I'm trying to figure out you went from disinterpreting and the steel thing and you lost actually that's where I'm sort of like where you are like you, you just lost your job at the steel thing yeah. and you're used to making a certain amount of money and then you but you did also mention something about getting involved with other people so like how did you scale the, and then and sorry I don't want to ask multiple questions in one thread but then also what was the like and then what was the thing that when you said because you said you weren't really sure that this is I don't know it sounded like you weren't really sure was there a moment the, the light bulb moment was it this Trados thing was there a light bulb moment when you said holy shit this is the thing that uh this is the thing I got to do this this is a great thing or something mm -hmm. like that yeah so no I I as soon as I got fired just a few months later I I opened up my business officially register as a as a translation business that whole website thing. And then it's probably the only the only few months that I'm really on my own, in a sense, without, okay. a, uh, without a partner, right? And then I meet this guy in virtually in an elevator. He lived in the same uh, building that we were renting um, um, our apartment, uh, you know, studying, right? Um, and he carries a golf, uh, a, a golf bag, right? And it's not, at least at the time, it wasn't really a popular sport. So I chat him up because I also, from my Canada days, I, you know, I can play some golf. So I chat him up and, and we start talking and, and so on. And, you know, the, the next uh, thing that, you know, I, I go and, and he, he used to run some advisory business, like an advisory boutique, maybe small investment sort of. Uh, boutique and I approach him with a question about uh, debt collection right because I had a few clients at this point and and I had some issues collecting the money from them right they wouldn't pay me or it would take too long and so on again I had you know nobody in the family that could help me with this and and so I didn't even you know know of like ways of collect debt and so on so I, I and he offered to help and the next thing I know is I, I write 50% of the company over to the guy, right? Virtually. <laughs> um, it was probably, and, and you can argue whether it was the cheapest way of learning or the most expensive mistake I made <laughs> in my life. Uh, but I, I, a, few late, a, few, a few years later, and not long, because it must have been in 2012, so probably two years later, I buy him out completely for a few hundred thousand zloty, maybe a hundred thousand euros or so. Uh, I still, I think it was one of the cheapest uh, uh, lessons I've learned, uh, the way of learning, but um, that's, the, so this is how I got my first partner. Uh, early on, we got into some uh, issues or he more, more like he got into some personal issues with uh, things that I don't want to get into, but, uh, and, and we just had to part ways. Uh, but this is, you know, how I opened a, a limited liability company with him and how I got my real first real company, in a sense, together with a partner, a 50% shareholder uh, that I replaced him. And, and then in two years later, I did replace him uh, uh, by obviously buying him out, like I said, and also partnering up with a different uh, LSP from Warsaw. Uh, and this is how in 2012 or late 11, uh, Summa Lingua was made, right? And, By a and, merger and, and, of and two just, translation companies. An LSP means language service provider. That's that's not a term everyone. LSP, so yeah. that just means it, for most people yeah, yeah. understand a translation company. Translation, yeah. Um, Set up translation. And, and, and if you were advise someone listening who hasn't yet had any business partners at all and 
is there, what would be your main advice to someone who about choosing partners what would be the most important one or two things you'd look for before you actually start a, you know have someone as a shareholder in your business mm, yeah i don't have a great track record uh i i did have to part ways with a number of them so, so, you, so, you, uh, must so... Be an, you must be an expert by now <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe flip it around <laughs> flip it around what what things should you avoid that's another way of saying <laughs> i was just i was just jumping into it without giving it much thought i'm i'm much smarter now and obviously you know value my i i i think i just have much more to lose at the moment so it's it's a little different but these early days i was just look a guy i meet a guy in an elevator virtually two or three weeks later i give 50 percent of my company to the guy right so and then we meet this other guy from Warsaw and like two months later, we merge our businesses and I replace one guy with another guy I barely knew. So um, I think at like what I would say now is probably a, a match in values, right? And also some, some form of a clash of, uh, well, egos or roles in the business, right? So if your values match and you have a well-defined role and who's going to do what, then it's probably, you know, the chances are it's going to work out. But at the end of the day, and even now, if you ask me, like, you know, people, and it's not the first time uh, uh, I, I keynote panels or conferences, and people tend to ask this stupid question, like, how did you achieve, you know, the success? Or why is it successful? What's the, I, I would say it's freaking luck, right? Um, honestly, I have no, no uh, problem admitting yeah, hard work and all these things and laziness, entrepreneurship and all that, but it's luck. You have well, to be just, lucky. Just to be clear, because yeah. people quite often don't realize how big translation companies can be. I, and you're a publicly listed company on the Warsaw Stock Exchange, yeah. so this is not secret. Can you just tell us what your estimated revenues are for this this year, 2022? Or yeah, some $35 million or so. Okay, yeah. so it's, it's not a small business anymore medium small to mid, mid medium size i think in our industry our industry and chemo knows very well it's we're big uh or in the top 100 or so because it's a fragmented industry but if you think of any other industry a 35 40 million dollar business would probably think from moving from poland to maybe opening up shop in czech republic and slovakia whereas my business we already have to be global from you know india poland Scandinavia, North America, and so on, because that's how it works in, in our industry. But yeah, it's not a, a huge business. So I, I really appreciate your modesty and humility because not, not everyone who does what you do is so open about making, well, basically pretty fundamentally risky mistakes of giving half the company to a stranger and so on, or doing those deals. Was there a moment at which you suddenly realized, I need to professionalize this? Because so, so, that could be a different, like, I, I, I can't do it like this anymore. I, I, you said you've got more to lose now, and obviously now is now, but uh, was there any, like, turning point where you suddenly thought, hmm, yeah, this, is, so this, is, this isn't the way to do it? In so so we grew, you know, from let's say 2012 uh, as Sumalingwe with this new partner, and he was completely passive, right? So I, I took care of the whole. I was the CEO and managing the whole show. Uh, I at this at this point in time, I got very ill. Um, I had um, a tick bite me. Hmm. If you uh, recall a, a disease called Lyme disease, I got the, the pretty serious version of this uh, thing. And, and I was completely out for a few years, actually. I was half paralyzed in a hospital, just very, very bad, very bad version. So, I, you know, business was really on idle. 
uh, 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 gear for some for some time. Um, we didn't really grow so much, but it didn't. You know, it was just I, I didn't. I couldn't really spend a lot of energy and time I didn't have on 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 this. Uh, and I got uh, gradually better and better after a series of treatments and and whatnot in 2015, 2016, probably. Uh, and this is why this is when we we sort of you know reopened the business in a sense. Uh, and this is where I realized this is when I realized we need to either you know I do something else. It wasn't really it's not exciting to run a, a by then probably a million dollar translation business working with, you know, half of my revenue was with the government in Poland, the other half with some, you know, corporate or individual clients here. It wasn't really something I would want to do for a long time. I had bigger ambitions. So I said, okay, let's try and and re um, yeah, reopen the business in a sense, restructure the business. And this is where we sort of started. Um, well, we went public in 2015. I attracted some early investment. We did a few uh, smaller acquisitions. In 2016, we did our first international acquisition in India. Um, and this is how I also teamed up with my uh, current partner, business partner, Madhuri. She's, uh, she owns a bit of, uh, she owns some 10% of the company and runs our operations. Uh, we do, uh, well, we work together very well as, as business partners. Uh, so um, I would say that's 2015, 2016. I, you know, my personal uh, situation allowed me to uh, uh, to kick this off again. So that's yeah, probably I think I, I, yeah. I think we need to focus on this because at least if I'm hearing correctly, you went from a million to 35 million in six years. <laughs> right. And I think that, you know, all this, all this like background and how you got here, but let's not, let's not lose sight of how the hell do you go from one to 35, <laughs> because I'd like to hear that story. Cause that's uh, like, I, I know the slog. No, and I, I actually know where you're coming from because I also feel like I slogged for years for that little bit of that small piece. And then all of a sudden the big numbers came relatively fast later, but I do want to hear, how do you go from, sorry, Richard, you see, I can see you want to say, say from one to 35 though. Uh, yeah, and, and, and again, coming to the like going public when you're a small company, and again, where did that? And you and you talked about your ambition. I mean, obviously, you come across people who do that, but there aren't that many. And again, did you have someone like advising you beside you, saying, "Hey, there's this way of doing it that's different," or, or did you read it in the newspapers? Because that's not that's not something that happens to everyone. What you've done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so again, I, I would say uh, luck because I met, you know, in our first office, uh, 2011, um, I think, uh, the, the next door neighbors, uh, this new law firm just opened up. Uh, and, and you know, I, we, we sort of got, you know, uh, acquainted or, you know, their friends still date, they still work for us. Uh, they did uh, all look after all our acquisitions from a legal standpoint, and they sort of introduced this this way of going public to us. We're traded on the alternative stock exchange called New Connect in Poland. It's a it's an alternative market for smaller companies. It was fairly new at the time, and uh, Agata, who's the uh, partner in the law firm, she was uh, one of the first law firms in Poland taking companies uh, uh, public on that stock exchange on that uh, uh, market. So. She introduced this idea to me. 
but to be fair, and that's one of these stupid things that I always wanted, like that first BMW, I, I probably always wanted to be uh, a CEO of a, or have a, a publicly listed company. Uh, not that it makes any difference, uh, uh, but just one of these stupid things I have to do. Well, you check the box. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Krishik, how did you go from one to thirty-five in five or seven years? Like, give us mm. the give us the helicopter view of that. I mean, I know I don't want to like. Obviously, I know personally. I know some of the story, but I want you to. Yeah. I want you to tell us how 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 you did it. Yeah. So, first of all, we grew organically, but a substantial part of that growth comes from acquisitions, right? So, we uh, I think. By now, if you take an average, we would acquire every one company a year, sometimes even two companies a year, right? So, and obviously with the size of the snowball, it keeps growing and growing and you keep buying bigger and bigger. But where do you get the money from? So, so yeah, the real, I, I did really struggle. And that's probably one of the most difficult things because it was really up until say 2019 or even 2020, it was just, I don't wish anyone to go through this because this came at a huge cost. And it's like a death, you know, you run a small business um, uh, as, you know, a one person shop, or then you start hiring the first people and, and so on. It's relatively okay. And, and the moment you start making, you know, you have a good living and, and so on. Obviously there's some risk involved and, and, and so on, but it's not, it's not, terrible you're not in a you know you're not full time with anybody you're on your own but the moment you decide to really go big and go bold you enter that death valley and it's freaking scary right because you the decisions you make they're so interdependent and like i so i bought companies with uh, with i didn't have the money to pay for i and so i had to you know i structured the price of the deal in a or many deals in a way that I it's contingent upon me raising the money in the year to come otherwise I don't have a, I don't have the money to pay them right so it was just a few years of a huge roller coaster uh, roller uh, a journey that you know uh, has a toll on my health that had a toll on my personal life uh, on it's just very very difficult sleepless nights um, and now it's obviously a success and we're, you know, we, we I'm trying sold. to understand though, Krishik, and even, even that I'm so difficult. familiar, I'm so familiar with how this all works. And then, but I'm, I'm just trying to understand. So like, where was the stress? Like, I, I'm just trying, I'm going to ask directly, is it you were, were you borrowing money? Were you getting investors? Was it trying to raise money? Where was the stress? Yeah. And like, you, were, you, you, you didn't have the money to pay for something and you were like negotiating with, with investors. Like, where was the, what was this? Can you describe this hell a little bit more? Yeah, so, I... so first of all, obviously, as any business, we had some assumptions on how much money we're going to make, and it mm -hmm. never worked, right? <laughs> Always our, our, and I tell you, that's one feature. If we're talking about like a, a checklist of entrepreneur, like if you're an entrepreneur, if you make good business plans, you're really not very likely to be go a good entrepreneur, right? <laughs> so the 20 sheet excels don't work. So I never made any good business plans. And so the plans, the little plans I had never worked out. So it, I was always short on this, right? So I had to source and, and, and fundraise from elsewhere. So I had a group of individual investors that I borrowed money from or that I raised money, equity 
money from, right? And this was a very difficult, um, you know, you're a small services company. Obviously, I was trying to differentiate and, and pitch a good equity story. But at the end of the day, I was a small services company, right? Very with big plans. And I had, you know, my my decks were amazing, but that's all I had. I was a deckware <laughs> uh, or a slideware company uh, at the point in time. So very difficult, right? But I did attract and it's probably um, if, if, you know, it's as an entrepreneur, as a CEO, you have to be good at hiring great talent and raising money, right? And this was all I was doing for the, uh, for the time. Uh, obviously, you know, being a sale, you're a sales, at the end of the day, you're in sales, right? You sell your company to investors and you sell your products or services to your clients. This was my job. So yes, we, with, with the little we had, we um, paid partially in our shares as a listed company was easier. And we paid uh, some portion of uh, the, the purchase price for the deals that we closed in, in that uh, period of time with, um, well, obviously with cash and then uh, postponed part of the payment for a year or two in, in forms of earnouts or, or just uh, delayed payments. And the way it was always structured is that, well, if everything worked according to plan, which it never did, uh, I would have the money, but I never did, right? So I had to raise again. It was just more and more difficult uh, to a point where it was really difficult, right? Really difficult. So, and and that's the thing, right? That's that valley, the death valley, right? If you want to grow, and at least that's my experience. There are others, obviously, uh, that were more lucky. But for me, it was really hell. It was really very difficult. I don't wish my son, I don't wish anybody to go through that uh, period of crazy growth. Uh, but, you know, had one thing were not work. like, I'll give you an example where it all sort of ended in 2019, December, we sold 51% of the business to three private equity firms, right? We, I uh, provided a way of, uh, well, a, it was a, a partial buyout of most of these mi minority shareholders that have invested. They made great returns on, on the deal and a big influx of capital to uh, the company to sponsor our further acquisitions and so on. That was, the company was then valued at about 120 million zloty. Uh, probably we sold at a 9x or so uh, on our, on our uh, profits, right? So a good deal uh, then um, at the point we were, at, I think, at 80 million zloty, right? So whatever the uh, dollar. 20-ish 20, uh, million dollars. 20 yeah. or so, yeah. Uh, but this um, this was a crazy deal. This was really a crazy deal because the way it was structured was the following, right? So first of all, um, I had two companies, one in the US, one in Canada, that I was supposed to buy with the money I didn't have, right? <laughs> and so all these three things were contingent upon each other, right? I had the Canadian company I was bidding for, and this process was highly competitive very good data business. We'll speak about data, I'm sure, uh, um, as you know, as our strategy in a while. So very, very difficult to buy because it was competitive. Uh, we paid about $10 million, $9.5 million for it, right? Then I had the second company, a smaller company, uh, a more traditional uh, uh, translation set up in the States. So I was bidding for these two companies and doing due diligence, right? Checking if everything's fine. This is a process that takes months in foreign geographies, right? Canada and the US, very expensive. Um, and at the same time, this 
private equity group was doing due diligence on us. And with the money they were supposed to invest, I was supposed to pay these two owners with, right? So, and then at the same time, I had to gather a group of about uh, 10% uh, or 15% of, of my uh, previous shareholders to also sell their shares to the private equity guys, right? For this whole thing to make sense. And at the same time, I was also obviously working on my organic results because the whole business model and these guys are awesome at writing these 20 page excels they have to that that thing has to work right so all these five things together and i had about half a year to do it i didn't fucking sleep right it was so and like one thing doesn't work one just imagine like this one guy and and this one guy had a, a bank account he's from lebanon he had a bank account in lebanon like and and he had to fly to warsaw with the owner of this uh, translation business in the States, he had to fly to Warsaw to actually, and, and uh, the money would not go to Lebanon, the KYC, AML, whatever. These things, like one thing doesn't work, that whole thing is goes to shit, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I would virtually go back off probably if that didn't. If... Wow. This that was is the crazy. craziest thing, craziest thing, right? But it worked. It worked. Christoph, you're being very sort of modest and humble along way along the side. This at, at the same time, making clear that you've really worked your your backside off. You really put the, put in the hours and everything like that. But you obviously were persuading people to sell to you. So when you were acquiring companies, did you present a slightly more professional image of yourself than you're presenting to our listeners in the sense that, yeah, <laughs> because, you know, really, no. they, 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 really? they, or was it, was it the money you're offering enough to me? No, I don't care. How, just, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think, and if you, if you ask me, it's about, you know, I think that's another, uh, another characteristic of a good leader or entrepreneur. I'm really authentic. I'm exactly the same uh with you guys on this podcast i'm exactly the same with my employees and i was and i'm exactly the same with the guys that i try to buy companies from or my investors i'll give you a funny story you know in in the covid times uh you know restaurants were closed right so you couldn't really go and eat out and uh, well honestly there's you know in in i think most deals there's this underground or there used to be this underground dining where you you know some restaurants were unofficially open and so on. So I'm sitting on a board meeting uh, in 2020 with a group of, you know, with my private equity guys, right? Um, We have uh, many board meetings once a month. They look at these 20 Excels that they make and compare them with the reality. And I have to explain why it's different. Uh, And and, um, so just talking to them, I said, look, guys, I have this uh, uh, dinner appointment with my wife, we would have to be wrapping it up and all the restaurants are closed. So I go on about telling them how I use this underground dining uh, facility in Krakow. And then my CFO calls me right after Chris, he says, like, Chris, are you stupid? Like, you're actually admitting to your investors that you're doing something like illegal or <laughs> and I'm like dude if I were to think of all these things like that's like Elon Musk tell- getting high on Joe Rogan yeah <laughs> and and really so one thing I'm just authentic Richard so um well I, I think I don't an think incredible, I would that's be, an incredibly, yeah. incredibly important lesson for listeners that you know Christoph is real 
He's not just some dude you meet in a bar who's BSing. You can look no, him up on the No, but hold on a second. I think, Richard, where you're cutting it, I think where you're coming from here, and Krisha, I'm sure that it's true. I, I, I know that this is all true, that you're authentic and all that, but I'm sure you weren't telling the guys that you were buying that you're on the brink and that you need this. <laughs> like yeah. You were definitely saying, I've got the money. <laughs> because there's, because no, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> overselling. So I've, I've oversold most, of the, most yeah. of the time. Same with this first big sale, right, to uh, Trados. Uh, story the, the same Conrad, thing Conrad. right i had no clue what trados was right um yeah. this was a hundred thousand euros eighty thousand euro deal uh for us at the time huge for us right so overselling to some extent yeah i have I mean, to be very careful now uh because with you know like i said i have much more to lose and you know if if you let a, a group of private equity guys take majority of your shares in in the business you have to run I'm, you know, I'm best friends with my lawyers and all the compliance and, and all that. So that's yeah. slightly different now. And it's difficult and it's very difficult because these guys, they make their money by avoiding risk, right? The lawyers, if you think about like their whole life is about just de-risking life. My fucking life is about taking risk <laughs> as an entrepreneur. So we have right, but you've gotten to the stage. Of interest. Yeah. But you've gotten to the stage where you'd like to de-risk as well now, right? Because you've yeah. gotten it big enough that you want to de-risk it. True, and, and <laughs> true. But it's difficult to, to to get along with these guys and the lawyers yeah. and all that if you're just yeah. you come from a two different worlds, right? Yeah. You have this that's, risk that's just yeah. Well, well, we, I couldn't agree more. I know, and I actually do totally agree with you because actually I find I get very frustrated. And I'm sure you do too. I just get very frustrated with them because it's like, come on, can't we just do this? Like, what, like what's the, like, why are we yeah. messing around with this stupid? Anyway, but I, I totally know where you're coming from. Anyway, I'm conscious of the time and then there's a lot still actually a lot to talk about. So it, when you gave the intro of your company at the very, very beginning of this podcast, I don't think you used the word translation <laughs> in there. <laughs> I, and so I think you're doing, I think you've um, pivoted this business um, and maybe you want to talk a little bit about that. And then if we can then move into where you're going with this whole exactly. thing, basically. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And this is also why and how I got from one to 35, right? By yeah. in, in very early on, I sort of realized that, well, early on, I mean, 2017, probably, I, I realized that the, the commodity of selling translation services is not going to really make me big and, and make a lot of money. I saw translation services as part of, or translation content as part of a bigger data puzzle within these companies. And that's something that got caught my attention. <laughs> and again, by a, a means of a coincidence uh, or luck or providence, uh, I've, I've, you know, we've received this request uh, for what was called, I think, multilingual tasks or language tasks something like that from a client of ours. And, and we looked at it and we said, look, that's just, this is data work. This is not translation. And we pivoted or started pivoting. And then this was also uh, our guidance for acquisitions. We bought uh, two companies in this, in this domain and the margins we make on data work, uh, we can explain uh, our, to, to the audience more about what it is, but um, we make, you know, our margins are much better. The, the industry, the data industry, obviously driven by the growth of AI is growing much faster than the translation industry and so on. So about 60, 60 plus percent of our revenue is now coming from data 
services and not translation services. We do still have a, a good footprint, obviously, in, in the traditional uh, localization space, but it's actually a minority at the moment. And this is what I think moved the needle uh, and, and accelerated the growth uh, very rapidly. Can you explain the data business then to someone who's, imagine someone very non-technical, who's reasonably yeah. intelligent, that's our audience, but they're not technical. <laughs> yeah, so um, a few use cases, right? So, uh, you know, you, you built, uh, and we work mainly in the voice and text uh, uh, formats, right? So there's image, there's video, there's, you know, self-driving cars that need a lot of image uh, to learn and, and so on. We don't really do much of that, but in the voice, uh, let's let's talk about voice. So uh, you have um, speech assistants, right? You have uh, car systems that you talk to, you have a Google Assistant, you have Alexa, all these voice assisted um, products. Uh, they obviously need um, a lot of natural voice to learn from, to be able to understand Richard, your UK accent, Kimon, your American accent, my uh, Polish Canadian, who knows where from accent, uh, and 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 so you need a lot of a lot of uh, recordings, basically. Then you so collection, right? You have to ask people all around the world that speak this given dialect or given language to record. Now, sorry, just to be clear, um, I think to help everybody, it's not only English. It's that's the whole point. These are oh, multilingual. Yeah. Yeah. These are multilingual data sets. So it's not yeah. only English, various English kinds, but it's like all. So these huge companies, they want to be in all the countries of the world. So. Yeah. That makes it so complex. So we collect that, right? So we have an app, a crowd of people that record different things for us, and, and we collect that. Then once you collect it, you obviously need to uh, curate it or prepare it in a way for that um, uh, AI engine to be able to learn from, right? So in, in uh, layman's terms. So we, we uh, do that, right? Then you have a lot of text. Uh, um, Sorry, when you say uh, curate, tangible. you mean... You're giving description, so like you're going to describe that this is this type of person. Discuss like what 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 Annotate. what what yeah. what yeah annotation. You you flack. You know you for example. Well, it's it's fairly complex, right? You annotation labeling. You you do name what part of speech is what. You need to transcribe it. You then look for things that you know you probably want the the systems to flack like. You know, uh, you have to watch for content that may have traces of, uh, you know, pornography or the words that you would not really your system want, you would not want your system to use or, you know, things like that. There's much more. Think about, uh, you know, um, another use case, gaming, right? People play games and, and online games. And obviously in these chatbots, they exchange a lot of conversations. They're usually not very polite and there is you know drag trafficking there is uh just kids you know a lot of problems with like suicide and 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 so on right they're mental you know close in these virtual realities right so we help these companies uh spot that right train the systems the ai system uh to to learn and pick that and spot that flag it to be able to react right so a lot of a lot of such use cases right you have a lot of other interesting work that you know comes from uh, um, just the, the the inherent multilingualism, Kimon, like you mentioned, and the, the the fact that the world is not English and it's global, and 
all the companies want to sell and work with the global uh, uh, audience. So um, taxonomy, uh, a lot that has to do with, you know, systems like, for example, there's a project we're working on at the moment, very complex, where a spin-off from the Cambridge University wants to, um, well, categorize and bucket all the legislation uh, from all around the world, right? So if you, let's say you... Uh, you query um, anti-money laundering uh, uh, laws, right? And you want uh, laws in that in that bucket from different countries or the countries of your interest, right? It's it sounds simple, but it's very complex. You need to elevate uh, taxonomy to a multilingual knowledge graph. In a sense, you can't translate it, right? Because the trans pure translation is not going to work. Uh, machine translation, you need to build that knowledge graph from scratch. Uh, so all that work that we call data uh, is basically aimed at, you know, uh, making products native in, in all these different languages, products that use AI, and now obviously most do or yeah. want to do. So yeah, so basically you've pivoted your language business into an area where you know, there's, there's more, there's going to be, there is currently, and there will continue to be more and more demand because of the, uh, you know, the emergence of AI. Uh, and so, yeah, so then you've just, so that, yeah. And that's obviously I'm aware of that as well. It's really, I think it's a really smart move. And so that just brings us to 35 million, whatever, all this stuff. Where, where does it go? Where do you go from, where do you go? So you got this AI 60, I think, I can't remember whether it's 60 or 40%. So let's say 60% AI uh, business. Where do you go? Where do you go from here? Mm, yeah, so look, I think, and that's something we, we haven't um, touched upon. I, and and since obviously I made, you know, I made some money on, on Sumalingue. I, I did also invest in other companies. I probably invested in some, 10 companies till date. So uh, I, I would not say I'm a uh, an investor, a professional investor by any means, but I did have uh, a few investments I made. Uh, some of them went, you know, very well. Some of them I bankrupted or the companies I invested in bankrupted. So went bust. So, uh, but I, I, I did make some money. And, and I think the, the from, from very early on, I look at all the companies I invest in and the companies I built or Sumalingue, as as products for sale at the end of the day. And it might sound brutal, it might sound scary, but at the end of the day, and also Summa Lingua and the share, it's not something, it's not, you know, my stock, it's not something I want to pass on to my son and my family. And, you know, it's, it's something that I will sell uh, that I have partially obviously sold already. Uh, and, and so, and I think it's good because at the end of the day, if you build something for sale, you build it with value in mind, right? You might have different motivations if you build it to pass on to your family, but I built this company to exit uh, from, right? So um, with the highest uh, valuation possible. So uh, it's, and I'm also very authentic and transparent about this with all our employees, right? We follow a, a business framework called uh, OGSM or part, part uh, scaling up part OGSM. And, you know, in our, in our statement, it, it is, you know, it, it, it talks about building our company with value for the shareholders in mind. It's very, it's very important, right? So it drives your, drives your decisions. So this is something that I will obviously sell. 
Now, okay. uh, if you work with uh, private equity, their business is obviously in buying and selling. So uh, at some point, an exit will come and it will probably also be an exit for me. Uh, but this is, uh, it's always been in our strategy. It doesn't change the strategy of the company. Obviously, the new buyer might have a different vision. That's something we can't uh, control. But in a sense, uh, you know, we continue expanding um, in our in our data on our data uh, 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 strategy, we do continue uh, our acquisition uh, strategy, M and A strategy. So very acquisitive, we think, uh, and intend to be buying anywhere from one to two companies or one or two companies a year. Uh, so I constantly that's part of what I do in the company, or most or big chunk of what I do in the company is you know talk with the smaller companies that want to maybe sell. Uh, so that's obviously on our plate. We do continue and intend to uh, still um, out, outgrow the industry. Our industry uh, obviously grows by some 6-7%. The AI uh, uh, space is in the 20s, uh, and we want to be closer to the 20, uh, uh, obviously uh, probably you know somewhere in between 10 and 20. So double-digit, uh, low double-digit organic growth uh, data uh, with uh, valuation in mind, value for the shareholders in mind. Um, that's that's uh, where I'm well, steering now, the business. Now and... you, so it sounds like you've been very transparent about the fact that there's, well, I mean, whatever, you have private equity who owns your company, so you definitely have an exit in your future and that you said that that might be the end end for you in terms of your your work with Suma. Work so with what, Suma. so that brings out you're so young and uh, you're so young what's next like what's next on this are you and you've gotten the education man you've gotten the real you, we, whatever education you said you had you got the real education now so and you're young and you have money and you have education what are you gonna do <laughs> yeah I, I i don't know i don't have it planned out uh it's i'm not a i'm not a guy that would you know i don't have the 10 years or 20 years of my right. life planned out um i think you know I, i'm fairly well connected in a sense. I'm very active in the uh, entrepreneurial uh, community here. And not only here, it's, uh, you've mentioned EO, uh, I think at the beginning of the, of the conversation, Kimon, I'm part and actually a founder of the Polish chapter of uh, an yeah, association. Yeah, tell us a little bit, called, just give us the high level, whatever, yeah. the 20,000, 30,000 foot about EO so everybody can hear. Because I don't think, I think I may have mentioned it before we went on uh, live, uh, yeah. recording. Oh, okay. Yeah, EO Entrepreneurs uh, Organization is, and uh, I think the biggest, uh, world's biggest uh, organization uh, for entrepreneurs. It's a spin-off for uh, maybe wider known uh, organization called YPO, uh, born in the US in 87, and now uh, probably gathering about 14,000 people across the globe. Uh, that are either founders or owners or significant owners uh, of uh, businesses with revenues uh, upwards of a million dollars in case of EO and 13 or 14 million dollars in terms uh, or uh, for for YPO in YPO's case. So uh, just very, um, just a a, a very, well, to me, a very important organization. I brought it to Poland together with uh, a few other guys. I met Io in India and in Germany through uh, my contacts there. Just amazing vibe, amazing connection, uh, many learning. And what's the just briefly the value? Like, what's the value proposition? 
What's the value? Like, why, why should I join? Yeah, so a few, a few uh, uh, let's say, principles, right? So first of all, it's an organization that you will not, um, that, that you can uh, benefit from a very wide range of learning opportunities, right? Extremely well connected within uh, many universities across the globe. Uh, there's probably two courses a day that you can attend if you want to in some country somewhere. Right, so extremely well, well uh, connected in terms of learning. Uh, now, the second value is the network, right? Because you have fourteen thousand peers in the organization that you can directly connect to. There is a twenty-four hour reply policy. Uh, so, if I pick somebody in the U.S. or in India, they should reply to me within twenty-four hours, and I know their owners or founders of a business. Uh, there's the full profile on the app, so you can check them out and just helped me a lot, helped me a lot and immensely with many, many, uh, you know, international needs that I had, or even just my, you know, I'm in a, in the US or in India for a trip, I have a day off, weekend, whatever, I just want to hang out with somebody, just a great way of, of, uh, um, of doing so. And there is a non-solicitation policy in the organization. So it's, I'm actually not allowed to be, you know, handing so nobody selling to you and, and you're not selling to anybody. No, yeah, that's good. No. And that makes it very easy or much easier, right? Because the person that I'm pinging knows that I'm not here to sell him something, right? Right. So that's that's important, right? Then obviously there is a third, uh, a third aspect to it. Um, it's called forum. It's the smallest unit, uh, six to eight people, six to 10 people. We meet frequently once a month <clears throat> according to a, a six hour agenda uh, brings a lot of value it's based on experience sharing and 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 again that's a principle in eo you don't give advice you're not going to hear an advice from a fellow eo member you will hear experience uh and then you do with you do whatever you want with that experience you're not going to be judged you're not going to be advised you will hear a lot of experience that's uh that's something uh, very important and it's also the last thing i want to say it's not only about the business aspect of your life there is a triangle that we call of, of uh, let's say, you know, dimensions of your life. Business is obviously an important part of it, but you're also part of a society and you're part of your family or your personal life, right? So family, society, or community, your personal life, and then your business. And EO provides opportunities in, in all these uh, three categories, right? So uh, very important for me. So maybe I'll get involved more or through my EO connections, I obviously have a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities. I also do have other you know companies I invested in. Uh, so and and just I'm I'll be opportunistic. That's something uh, another checkbox on my uh, list of who's an entrepreneur. You're just like I can't plan for this right, uh, right. in detail. And it also, it's also not helping me. Like if I were now to sit down and plan my future after exit, like, I don't know, maybe it will be yeah. in two years, maybe in a year's time, maybe in three years. I'm not going to spend my time yeah. on it. I'll, I'll do fine. I'll do I'm fine. Sure, I'm absolutely sure you will. And opportunistically, I'm going to follow up with, I used to be a member of YPO a while ago. And, oh, okay. I'm, I'm, and I'm going to be in Australia next month. And I was just thinking it would be really useful to plug into this EO thing. So I might drop you a mail and ask whether 
in some because it could be interesting. It could be interesting for me as well. And I think you've done a great job of advertising it. I'm, I'm, this, this is a podcast about you, not about what we do. But um, there's some different. But uh, if there is an advice, I don't give advices following the EO principles. I'm not. You're not going to hear an advice from me. But if there is an advice uh, to young or to entrepreneurs, join EO. That will help you a lot. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so that's a great recommendation. Yeah. And is, is there anything else you'd like? Like, I think we're basically drawing. To, is there anything else you haven't shared from your story that you think is important that our listeners ought to know? You've done a fantastic job, and I really appreciate your openness. And I think it's been a great mm. listen. So, thank you. Well, maybe the only thing that is always very important to me that we haven't touched upon. We've spoken a lot about, you know, the upbringing and and the uh, the education or the lack thereof, or uh, and, and my business, but I think, and I always mention this, probably one of the best decisions in my life and, and you know, something that holds me strong and is the foundation of uh, um, most of what I do is my family, my wife, uh, you know, and, and my family, very important to me. Uh, that aspect of my life is just, you know, probably the most important aspect of, of my life. It helps me immensely with the business as well, because it's a safe haven I can always go back to. Uh, it's, it's you know, if, if you have your personal life messed up, it's not helpful with the business. Uh, so just, my, you know, my wife and I were together for, um, we're married for 10 years, together for 14, I think. It's just a very important part of part of my life, uh, especially when you're going through hardships like the death valley I described or my personal you know problem that I had with my health. Extremely important. So I always give give credit to my wife uh, for for my achievements, if you can call them that way. And it's just very very important to me. So what a great note. very good. That's a very good note. And obviously, we can't control the quality of our personal lives and we try to as much as we can but that i think that having i think what i, I what i want to emphasize is having that in balance don't underestimate how important it is to have that piece in balance as well for your business success as well as for your ha personal happiness so i'm, I'm with yeah, you completely yeah. i'm with you completely on that and should I, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us i did learn some stuff about you like i was hoping to like we both drove i drove an american car and i also spoke english to the to the police when they stopped me <laughs> so <laughs> i did the, awesome. like i brought it i did the exact same thing as you so whatever it was a lot of fun and i, I think this was a useful episode so thanks 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 so much for taking the time thank you guys thanks for having me